Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Damascus Road Church. Our current series is Jesus Over All, a look inside the call for the glory of God to be our aim in all of life. We're in a teaching series that we're entitling Jesus Over All, and we're looking at, really we're looking at what it means to live your life for the glory of God. We, uh, we Christians like to say things like that, and then kind of just leave it generalized. Like, our lives should be lived for the glory of God. Woohoo, yeah, we agree with that. Well, what does that mean? Um, I mean, that's, that's a little bit hard to quantify sometimes. What does it mean to live a... Uh, what does it mean to work for the glory of God? What does it mean to play for the glory? I mean, is that even possible to play for the glory of God? What does it mean to drink coffee for the glory of God? I think you can do that, uh, and I'll explain that in an entire message somewhere down the road, but uh, not today. Today we want to look at the idea of marriage. What does it, le- what does it mean to, 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 to be married, to do marriage for the glory of God? What's different about our marriages if Jesus is in the picture? Is it just something you know, nice that we say? Or is there, there actual ground level differences? Now in order to do that, I need to say a couple things as a way of a precursor. First of all, um, as my wife will tell you, I and she's not here this morning, um, which is a little disturbing that I'm preaching on marriage and she like bolts. Um, <laughs> she's in with the kids. Um, as my wife will tell you, though, I am not I am not the perfect husband. I, I was I wasn't really expecting a gasp from you guys there on that one. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, no, uh, no, I'm not the perfect husband. Um, I've heard preaching described at different times as one beggar telling some other beggars where to find bread. And when it comes to marriage, that's particularly applicable. I've been married for almost 17 years, and um, I am not the perfect husband. I've learned a lot about what it means to be married, what it means to be a husband. I've read scriptures on it. I've read lots of books on it. Um, But ground level, there's still plenty of mistakes, and I'm right there in the trenches with you guys. It's not just because I get to preach on it that I have figured it out, and now let me bless you with all the ways that I have discovered to have a perfect marriage or anything like that. What I'm going to do is just dive into Scripture and say, here's what the Bible teaches us about marriage and what's instructive and informative for us and what marriage for the glory of God looks like. And so as I was going through it this week, tremendously convicting for me, and I hope that uh, this is helpful, it was helpful for me to just really think through this this week, and I'm just kind of sharing, sharing the journey with you in many ways. Uh, the other thing is I realize that not all of you are married. There are, are many of you who are single, um, some of you that are very young and single, some of you that aren't as young and single, and that's cool. Um, and so sometimes when you do a message on marriage, you kind of feel like you're like just speaking to the married folk and like singles just hang out for a little bit and we'll get to you later. Um, what I really want to do is there will be a number of messages in this series that kind of have a little bit of that feel to it, um, perhaps, um, but I... But I want, if you're single, first of all, you should be thinking about marriage in general because for many of you, marriage is in the future and so you shouldn't just plan to be, plan, uh, you shouldn't just be thinking about marriage when you get engaged and now you start to prepare for marriage. Marriage should be something that you're thinking of and exploring and thinking through how it's going to work in general. So I hope this is instructive for you. And then there are things that we're going to talk about that just are going to cover relationships in general. Just friendships in general. And I think a lot of what we're going to talk about here is I'm not going to get into a lot of nuts and bolts about marriage in general. I'm just going to talk about how to, how to get along, how to, how to live in, in relationship for the glory of God. And so 
So, so on one level, you know, there will be stuff that are specifically applicable to those of you that are married, but I don't want those of you who are, are not married to feel entirely excluded, although I realize when you kind of do this message, there's a little bit of that, and I apologize for that. So, to start off with, let me read you a story, okay? Uh, I read a book uh, a few years ago by a guy named Paul David Tripp, who has a gigantic walrus mustache that's awesome. Um, and Tripp wrote this in his book. I love Tripp's writings, um, but his mustache just cracks me up. It's just this beautiful, beautiful thing. He says this, In 1978, I did one of the most courageous things in my life. I became a kindergarten teacher. One Monday afternoon, the mother of one of my novice academics asked if she could have a birthday party for her daughter in the classroom on the following Friday. The day came, and after the mother's frenetic preparation, we all entered the room. She had turned our little classroom into a birthday kingdom. The walls and tables were lavishly decorated. Multicolored streamers hung from the ceiling, and a balloon within a balloon was tied to the back of each chair. At each seat was a ribbon-tied cellophane bag of party favors. The only exception was the birthday girl, who was surrounded by a huge pile of beautifully wrapped gifts. At the far end of the table sat Johnny. Johnny kept doing the same thing over and over. He would look at his little bag of party favors, then at the birthday girl's mountain of gifts, and he would fold his arms stick out his lower lip, and let out an audible <laughs> Each time, the look on his face got more and more ugly and his humphing more audible. You can see little Johnny, <laughs> right, kind of crawling inside of himself. Before long, he had become the center of attention and was well on his way to spoiling the party. Then one of the mothers walked over and knelt beside him. She turned his chair so that Johnny was looking directly into her face and she spoke the profound words, Johnny, it's not your party. Johnny wasn't supposed to be the center of attention. There's a business right down the street here called It's Your Party. Then this will be a different, uh, the alternative one. Put, set up this one on the other side of the street, right? Johnny wasn't supposed to be the center of attention. He wasn't supposed to have a huge pile of gifts. It was Susie's birthday. And everything was rightly focused on her. Johnny would never enjoy his inclusion in the event if he demanded to be the center. So it is with the grand story of the Bible. With all of its locations and people, with all of its dramatic events of nature and history, at the center of the story of, is the Lord. It is His story. And Paul summarizes the story this way, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that story. Because if you're anything like me, you live life like Johnny quite often. And quite often, if you're married and you live your marriage like me, you'll have that moment because you think it's about you. Right? You think that life is about the glory of you. And so when all of a sudden there's... People aren't paying attention to you. Your needs aren't being met. Your, what you want isn't being just given to you. You cross your arms, you stick out your lower lip, and you, like little Johnny, let out that audible. <laughs> right? This is what we're talking about in this series, is that life in general, this, this, this life that we live under God is not about our glory. 
It is about God's glory, and we are to be living for His glory. And for so many of us, when we're unhappy and dissatisfied, it's because we have misplaced and misdirected the center. We're off-center. We think it's about us, and ultimately, it's about God. Now, what did Johnny need to do to enjoy the party? Think about that for a second. What did Johnny need to do to enjoy the party? Not sit in the corner and pout, right? I mean, he got a nice little bag of party favors. If you go to a party and there's lots of presents and lots of glory being kind of distributed to the birthday girl, it, it can be a fun time when you realize it's about her in that situation. And so for Johnny to thoroughly enjoy that, for Johnny to be happy and joyous in that occasion, he had to realize it's about her. And his joy was actually found in her glory. That's what I've argued for the last couple of weeks is that our ultimate joy isn't in ourselves being the center of attention. That's dissatisfying. Our ultimate joy is only found when Christ is lifted up above all and we see Him as most glorious. When we really understand that, that's where joy comes in. And so as we think through this, the question we're going to ask first is, what is marriage for? What is marriage for? Um... For many of us culturally or personally, we say marriage is about our satisfaction, it's about our happiness, it's about personal fulfillment, it's about completeness, perhaps. Um, there's the old uh, Jack Nicholson movie, As Good As It Gets, you know, where he says to a very younger, I think Helen Hunt, and it's a little creepy, you complete me, right? And just like that kind of line, and there's some, some of that like marriage thing, like if I just am with this person, then life will be complete, the puzzles will fit together, and life will be good then. And so for culturally, we tend to think that. And a lot of times, as we, Marianne and I have done premarital counseling, we'll ask, well, why do you guys want to get married? And there'll be some of that answer in there. Hopefully that's not the only answer. But so for many of us, when we think, what is marriage about? We think it's about happiness and satisfaction. And in some ways, yes. When God creates Adam and Eve, and he officiates over that first wedding in the Garden of Eden, Eden, God says as he's creating Eve, he says it is not good for man to be alone. It's the only thing in a pre-sin creation that is not good. God creates everything else and says this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. This isn't good. Adam's alone. And so he creates Eve. There is great joy in marriage, but marriage is not ultimate. Okay? If we view marriage as ultimate, we're going to be completed or satisfied if we get married. If we view marriage as ultimate, there are a couple possible outcomes, and neither of them are very good. Some may say, I need to get married in order to be a complete or good person. Right? So it's an idolization of marriage. We say marriage is the ultimate, and if I'm going to be fulfilled in life, if I'm going to be a valuable member of society, and some cultures have done this, I have to be married. And so we lift up Marriage. I call it the Samson, Samson syndrome, right? You guys remember Samson? Big, strong guy, knocked over a lot of stuff, killed a lot of people in the Old Testament. And Samson was kind of ruled by his gut, ruled by his impulses, and he would walk down the street, see a beautiful girl, and say, I need her. I have to have her. In order to be fulfilled, in order to be happy, I need to be married to that woman. No matter what, where she's from, no matter what, all, the, all kinds of cultural and other kind of circumstances, Samson just, I ha- in order to be right, in order to be well, I need to have this. And so he tells his dad, get her for me. Get her to be my wife. It's a Samson syndrome. We think that we need to have marriage in order to be complete or good or whole. And if we view marriage as ultimate, that might be one of the uh, outcomes that we think. 
And so for, for many of us, we, we, we idolize marriage in that way. The other thing we can do is if we are marriage and we view marriage as ultimate, we may say, my personal marriage doesn't ultimately satisfy me. Like, I'm, I think I'm supposed to be satisfied and completely, um, completely uh, whole in marriage, but I'm not. And so I look at other situations, whether that's a life of singleness or whether that's a marriage to someone else, as necessary. Right? So in one sense, if you're unmarried and you think marriage is the ultimate, you can, you can idolize marriage. In the other sense, if you are married and your marriage just isn't doing it for you, you say, well, I should probably be single or I should be married to another person or I should have a different relationship. It's an idolization perhaps of singleness, perhaps of other people's marriage, and I call it the Solomon Syndrome. So some of us have the Samson Syndrome where we think merit, we need marriage in order to be right in the world, and some of us have the Solomon Syndrome, and Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, I tried everything. I tried marrying hundreds of women, and nothing. It's all vanity, he says. Marriage just never quite fulfilled me. It never did it. It could never take the place of what God is supposed to be in our life. And so as we think about marriage, and as we think about our tendency, especially in the evangelical church, to, to, um, to make marriage as this just apocalyptic, ultimate thing, as, as we kind of tend to do that, I wonder, could it be that you're trying to find in marriage what can only be found in God? I think there are a lot of marriages that expect out of their marriage what can only be found in God. And there's a lot of us who are unmarried that think, if I get married, then, then all of this will be right. And... As those of us who are married can tell you, no, (laughs) no, that can only be found in the good news of Jesus. So what is marriage about then? What if marriage is not just about our own fulfillment or not just about our own happiness? Although, let me be straight and say marriage, there's a lot of happiness and joy in marriage. And I'll get to that in a second here. But what if marriage is more about God's glory? What if marriage is about God using that partner to make us more like himself, to to, to create holiness in us, to become Christ-like? What if marriage is about service and mission? What if in creating Eve, God is even showing something of himself? God, God doesn't exist alone. God eternally exists in Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in creating marriage, God is creating us in his image and saying we exist and we need to be in community and so maybe in marriage god is even showing us something of his own character and his own traits and his own attributes and perhaps god is even showcasing the gospel in our little finite marriages and as a husband loves his wife sacrificially he's showcasing the love of jesus for his bride the church as a wife loves her husband sacrificially. She's showcasing the glory and joy found in God's love for his people. And so whether we think of marriage as about our satisfaction or whether we think of marriage as about God's glory, there's a pretty big difference there. And for many of us, when we think what what set of uh, things, whether it's about happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction or whether it's about God's glory and our holiness and our service to other people, when we think through that context, what set of options to you brings more real joy? Because culturally, this one is held out. 
It's about happiness. It's about fulfillment. It's about satisfaction. So if you don't have that, switch your marriage. Or stop being married. Culturally, we say it's about satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment. But biblically, biblically, according to God, marriage is about service to the other so that we can become holy and happy and God is glorified. And it's only in living for God's glory and giving ourselves away do we find satisfaction, joy, and ultimate purpose. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8. He says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus tried, just flips everything up on his head, uh, upside down, in terms of how we think. Because we think, if we're going to really make it, if we're going to be fulfilled, then we need to do this, this, and this. And Jesus says, no, those who, those who are really are going to save their life are the ones who give it away. Those who would save his life would lose it. If you want to be happy in your marriage, give yourself away. We apply that to marriage. Well, there might be some pushback here, right? Uh, so some of you are thinking this, like, really? So marriage is about God's glory and about service and about, like, holiness, and that just does not sound fun or good, right? Like, that just sounds... Oh, really? <laughs> like, is that, is that what marriage is about? Is like, I mean, that doesn't, that's not romantic, is it? Like, there's no doves and hearts and chocolates in that. That just sounds horrible almost, right? It's about, not horrible, but it's, really? It has to be about that? Can it, what do I get out of it, right? And I'm not sure I really buy the happiness part, right? Well, here's what Paul says. In his great, great little section on marriage, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.28. And I want you to listen to this carefully. You might want to turn there, because this, this passage in Scripture, this verse in particular, is astounding and perplexing on some sense. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Here's what Paul says. So listen carefully. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let me say that last sentence again. Ephesians 5.28 He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, what in the world does that mean? He who loves his wife loves himself? See, when we think about it, marriage, and you guys have been to weddings, marriage and the pastors always talk about two lives becoming one. Marriage is about two lives becoming one under the lordship of King Jesus. And in that relationship, if in that relationship, your pursuit is only for your temporary satisfaction, you'll be miserable. Okay? If you commit yourself to another person in marriage, and you then go out and pursue only your pleasure, you will be miserable in that relationship and in life in general. And Paul says, he who loves his wife, and I think you can flip that on, on, on the, uh, uh, in the reverse and say, she who loves her husband loves himself or herself. If you give yourself to the joy of your spouse, you get a lot in return. Now, are you supposed to give just in order to get, and it's kind of like this backhanded little thing? No, that's not what Paul's talking about. But here's what it means. Husbands, if you spend all day Saturday... Sunday, Monday night, and Thursday night watching whatever football you can find on the television and your wife is not a football fan, your wife will certainly be miserable. But, guess what? So will you. Right? You'll be miserable. You may have a few fleeting moments of pleasure as your team scores a touchdown, but in general, you will be miserable. Wives, if every waking minute you're on the phone with your mom, friend, Facebook, your husband will be miserable. Right? 
but so will you. You will be miserable. That relationship is not working the way that it's supposed to work. Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. If you give yourself to your spouse, there is joy. It it doesn't make sense because we think, I've got to collect all this stuff. I've got to get people to love and serve and affirm me. And Paul says, give yourself to the other. Jesus says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. And that applies in marriage. The more you give yourself to your spouse, the more joy you'll have. That, that completely doesn't make sense according to the world's standards. But according to God's economy, according to how Jesus says our marriages and our lives work, it's absolutely true. The more you serve, the more joy you'll find. Now some of you, maybe you're newly married, maybe you are not married, you, you don't, you, you're not quite tracking with that. But I guarantee, after seven, well, not quite 17 years of marriage, that that's absolutely true. I, I have this tendency in me to try to do things for my own pleasure. So I try to arrange my days quite often for my own. This is what I want to accomplish. This is what I want to do. And I don't always naturally think about other people. Surprise, surprise, because you do it too, right? But when I give myself to my kids, when I give myself to my spouse, Marianne, it, there's so much in return. Life is better. When you give yourself, when you serve. So here's my challenge. For those of you that are married, here's my challenge. Pick a day this week and fight to make the other person as happy as possible. Okay? Pick a day. Uh, Tuesday. That might be a good day for you. Or Thursday. I don't even care. It might be the rest of today. But pick a day and just dedicate that day to making your spouse as happy as possible. And here's what you're going to find. As he or she finds all this pleasure in joy in you giving yourself to him or her, you'll be happier. I, I can guarantee that. As you give yourself to your spouse, you're loving yourself. There's joy compounded back to yourself. So find chores that you can do for her. Surprise him with a gift. Finish that project that you've neglected. Speak constant words of affirmation. It doesn't have to be elaborate. You don't have to go buy them a new car. Spouses should appreciate time over money and just attention, words of affirmation, conversation, whatever it is that makes her tick, whatever it is that makes him tick, do it and give yourself that day and find out if there's not something in return that you receive. Because Jesus says, he who loses, his life will find it. And I guarantee this, you will find joy in this. Most marriages die not because of this one big tragic event. Most marriages die because things slowly erode away. We stop paying attention. We, we, attention isn't paid to the slow loss of tenderness or compassion in a marriage. So my challenge for you guys is to pick a day and just dedicate your day. There should be little text messages of love. <laughs> little gifts. Attention. Do the dishes, even if that's not on your list. Care for her. Give her time off. Husbands, do this. Wives, do this. Give yourself to that person, and you will find joy as, as you just love and care for that other person. Most marriages die because attention isn't paid to the slow loss of tenderness or compassion in a marriage. For me, I, I, there's, there's just times in our relationship 
uh, usually when it's busy, it's a busy season, maybe I traveled a little bit and then I came home and had, you know, a lot, lots more to do or something like that. And all of a sudden, I just realized there's this funk in our relationship. We're not connecting in our marriage. And it, it's not like it's we're barking at each other or throwing things or anything like that. It's just there's no communication. and It's just this loss of compassion or tenderness in our marriage. And so the first thing we need to do is realize that we're in this funk and realize that we haven't talked or snuggled or taken a walk for a week. We've focused on ourselves, And then give yourself to your spouse. Listen, in our natural state, we are selfish, lazy, self-righteous people. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish, lazy, or self-righteous. They learn that one pretty good on their own, don't they? My kids did. I learned that one pretty good on my own. I didn't have my mom sit down and say, all right, here's how we're going to like, teach you to be a hoarder and selfish with all your stuff. They, that just happened very naturally for me. Um, I am naturally selfish. So are you. We are naturally lazy, expecting other people to serve us. And we are naturally self-righteous, thinking we're right and our standards are right and everybody else is wrong. We, we bring that to our marriages then. This selfishness, this laziness, and this self-righteousness. We bring the selfishness where we say, this is about me. Little Johnny in the corner, this is about me. We bring this laziness to marriage where we think, this is about me being served. I should be served in the way that I want to be served. And then we bring this self-righteousness to the relationship where we think, I'm the one who's right. We bring all of that into our marriage, and then we're confused why things are so tense and why lines are being drawn. All of this is particularly concentrated in our marriages. This selfishness, this laziness, this self-righteousness. Because when you live alone, you don't necessarily notice that. Right? I, I was, I, I've, I've told this before, um, I was a completely holy person when I was living by myself. Like I was, man, I was Christ-like in almost every character trait. And then I got married, Marianne and I moved in together, and I like, realized I am a jerk. I am a selfish, pig-headed jerk. And I've said this at some of your weddings as I preach that wedding sermon. Marriage is a great sin identifier. If you want to know what you're really like underneath everything, get married, and all of a sudden you realize, I am selfish, I am lazy, and I am self-righteous. And, and I say that, and you know, all of you beaming couples stand at each other and just kind of, no, 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 that's not us. We won't be like that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And then we talk later, and they're like, hey, you're right. I'm selfish. I'm lazy. I'm self-righteous. What, what, I bring that to the marriage, and we all bring that to every relationship that we're in. All of this. We bring this selfishness, this laziness, and this self-righteousness. Well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Here's what James says in James chapter 4. James says this. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? And if I just ask that and ask you to write it down, some of you, perhaps, if your spouse wasn't looking at your sheet, would say, his, <laughs> fill in the blank, or her, fill in the blank. He doesn't talk as enough. She talks too much. He doesn't like the things I like. We have different issues and all this kind of stuff. And we would point towards the other person. So James asks the question, what causes quarrels? What causes fight among you? And we usually say him, her. And James says this, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You want something. There's a selfishness, so you fight and quarrel about what you want. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says, what's, what's causing all this fighting, what's causing quarreling in your marriages, in your relationships, whatever it is, it's you. The common ingredient in every conflict that you've ever had is you. And James says, at your core, there is something wrong. You're fighting for your own kingdom rather than, as Jesus calls us, giving yourself away. Why is there tension, fighting, quarreling in your marriage? It's not because of personality differences. It's not because you have different tastes in music. It's not because she's a firstborn and you're a lastborn. It's not because of different movies that you like. She likes romantic comedies and you like James Bond. The uh, reason there is tension, fighting, quarreling in your marriage is you. You're selfish. You're lazy. You're self-righteous. Our greatest marital problems are inside of us, not outside of us. So what's the solution then? The solution is to turn to the gospel. It's to turn to the good news of Jesus Christ. We see and we cherish the work of Christ on our behalf, who took our sin, our rebellion on himself and died so that we could be free from that. The solution is to let the Spirit of God take Christ's work and apply it and change us and mold us into His image so that we turn from selfishness to service. We turn from laziness to engagement and we turn from self-righteousness to humility. A few years ago, Marianne and I went to this marriage conference. Some people sent us to a marriage conference, which is, you always kind of like question people's motives when they're like, hey, go to this marriage conference. And you're like, wait, what, what are you saying? And it was a gift. Somebody else had been to this conference and it was a blessing to them. And so they, they wanted to send us to them. There wasn't like they were like saying, I know you guys are really struggling and you're, you know, we're concerned for your marriage. But it was just kind of a, a blessing. And we were sitting in this marriage conference and listening to different stuff. And, um, and, and it, was, it was good. It was a good weekend away. And there was one line, this is really the only thing after five, six years that I can remember of this conference specifically. There was one line where the speaker uh, got up there and she was talking through some different issues and she said this. She said, there was a, this revelation to me hit me when, when my spouse and I were fighting one time and I realized your spouse is not your enemy. And, 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 and she said, I, I thought through that and, I, th- and I, I realized that for the first time. Because so often we draw lines. I'm right, she's wrong. He's, he's lazy, I'm not. Whatever it is, we kind of draw these lines and we view our spouse as the enemy in different circumstances. I've got to fight for this territory. I've got to fight for whatever it is. And the speaker got up there and she said, your spouse is not your enemy. And that one hit me. And I, don't, I never really thought of Marianne as like, here's the battle lines are drawn, and I'm over here, and I've got my, you know, whatever, and she's over there, and we're going to go at it. It wasn't like that, but every once in a while in marriage, you'd have that kind of situation where you've got your preference, she's got her preference, and boom, what are you going to do about that? And you think that there is, there's, there, well, you know that there is conflict over this. And so as the speaker continued on, she laid out the, the, the great plan of marriage, where it's two lives becoming one, serving and sacrificing for each other, giving themselves to the other for the joy of the other, for the joy of their spouse. And that statement, your spouse is not your enemy, is huge. And as I've thought through that, and as I've tried to apply that over the last five or six years, there's been one thing for me personally in marriage that I've realized has to happen if our marriages are going to be what God calls them to be. And the need in marriage 
is for a perpetual state of forgiveness. If, if I could give like one word of counsel to married couples, it is to forgive, forgive, forgive. Marriage will give you multiple times a day or an hour to forgive. There will be things that your spouse does that you don't appreciate, that you don't like, that you disagree with. And forgiving is how we take what God has done to us and apply it to our relationships. For many of us, not forgiving our spouse is some kind of power play. We hold on to these areas where we think we're right and she's wrong. We think he's, uh, we're right and he's wrong. We hold on to these ways and we don't want to forgive because we want to hold the power. But here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let me give you three quick ways to forgive, how we should be forgiving towards our spouses or any relationship, really. First thing is forgive quickly. Forgive quickly. Don't sit there and have this pros and cons of forgiving argument within your head or on paper. <laughs> don't, don't sit there. Just forgive. Here's what James says earlier in his book that we read. Uh, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And the opposite of slow to anger is, is really quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. Your marriages will be healthier and happier and will live for the glory of God more if you're quick to forgive. You showcase Christ's forgiveness when you forgive your spouse. Be quick to forgive. Give. For those of us that have been married more than two or three years, this is tremendously important. And we, it was what, you know, for me as someone who's almost got two decades of marriage under their belt, for those of you that are newly married, learn quickly to forgive quickly. Learn how to forgive quickly. Learn to forgive quickly. It's absolutely essential. Because what can happen is some little thing happens, and it's usually little things. It's erosion, not explosion. Some little thing happens, and you get upset about how he did this, or how he didn't put his socks down, or how she put away the dishes, or whatever it is, some little stupid thing, and you don't forgive about that, right? It's usually the little things. But then you find more and more things that you don't like, and it escalates, and it erodes, and it just kind of slowly builds up, and you're not quick to forgive, and this whole thing creates a wedge between you where you're finding out ways that she's wrong, and he's finding out ways that you're wrong, and it just gets worse and worse. So this afternoon, when your wife does something that you don't really like in the way that you like it, or your husband doesn't say things the way that you want in the way that you want it to be said, Forgive quickly. Be quick to forgive. Second way we need to forgive is proactively. Forgive proactively. Some of us say, I'll forgive him if he gets it right. <laughs> right? So, I, um, confession time. I, I am not very good at like um, putting my clothes away after Marianne. Marianne usually does the laundry on Fridays, and then she folds them and kind of sets them on a dresser. And then I, it's my responsibility to put them away. Um, and I tend to just walk by that. Usually, um, in, this is the laziness thing, right? Is I just kind of walk by that giant pile of laundry and like, 
if I was by myself, I would probably just keep it stacked. That would be easier. Drawers are not a necessity. It's, you know, just stack it on the floor. It's good like that, right? Um, and uh, so, so Marianne um, folds those, and it usually takes me a couple days to, to get that done. And usually by then, once I put those away, she has done another load of laundry, and so I put those away, and it's just kind of this recurring thing. I mean, we have four kids, so it's just constant laundry, and I've got my stuff in there, and so there's always a stack of clothes that I need to be putting away, and I'm not very good at that. And um, one of the things that Marianne does is she forgives proactively. I'm, I'm working on it, I'm trying, but she forgives me even when I don't quickly change my stupid, boneheaded behavior. Um, and I've, I've had to learn to do that, too. Like, there are things that I want to hold on to and I want to point out, but I just need to, you know what, it's just better if you just forgive. It's just better that way. When you think about it, Jesus did this. Jesus' preemptive love on the cross 2,000 years ago is what transforms us today. He chose to proactively forgive us through his work on the cross, and it transforms us. And so, as Jesus says, I'm not going to hold that against them. We say that to our spouse. So forgive quickly, forgive proactively, and then you will need to do this if you stay married for any length of time. Forgive repeatedly. It's the old 70 times 70 thing, right? 70 times 7 thing. How many times do I have to forgive my brother? 70 times 7. Well, okay, 490 times, then, then I can know. Jesus' whole point is keep forgiving. Forgive repeatedly. This, this sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? Uh, it sounds hard because selfish, lazy, and self-righteous people can take advantage of forgiving people. There's a risk here. But as we live our lives for Jesus, as we live for the glory of God, as we live for something bigger than just our own satisfaction in marriage, as a couple is transformed from self-seeking to serving, from lazy to engaging, from self-righteous to humble, there's a number of things that happen. As we live in that way, God is glorified. It's when, when you see people that can forgive because of Christ's forgiveness, it gives glory to God. So God is glorified. The gospel is made known because we forgive as Christ forgave us, Colossians 3. We forgive in the same way that Christ forgave. So we glorify God. We make the gospel known. There's a missional aspect to that. And third, we find tremendous joy in marriage. The, the couples that I see often that are happiest in marriage are those who have learned to forgive quickly, proactively, and repeatedly. Um, my, my grandpa passed away about four months ago, and they were married, uh, my grandpa and grandma were married for 62 years, somewhere in that area. Um, and uh, they, you know, my, my grandma would say they never fight, and all of her kids kind of like, uh, you know, kind of did that. Because they fought, I'm sure. But I think what they did is they forgave. I'm sure they disagreed, and I'm sure some of those disagreements were, were tense, and I'm sure that my grandpa did things that my grandma didn't appreciate. I'm sure my grandma said things that my grandpa didn't appreciate. But that couple knew how to forgive, and they were happy and joyous, and Christ was glorified in their marriage. Forgive, 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 forgive. We have this cultural picture of great love. Like, what is great, big, wonderful, what does love look like? And so our stories and our movies will picture the hormonal 20-year-olds finding each other on board the Titanic, and it's just this wonder, you know, that's love, right? Or, or vampires somehow, that's love, right? 
That's, that's our cultural picture of marriage. Or not of marriage, of love. You want to know what love looks like? Look at these, look at these hormonal 20-year-olds. The real picture of great love is the 80-year-old couple sitting side by side with 60 years of service, engagement, humility, and forgiveness under their belt. That's real love. People have given themselves sacrificially to each other. Because if you ask that couple, you say, hey, man, you guys have just been so, so, so dedicated to, or to each other, so forgiving of each other. Is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? If I would ask my grandpa that before he passed away, was it worth it? And I have asked my grandma questions like that and had conversations with her. Was it worth it? Absolutely. That forgiveness, that, 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 um, that service towards the other, that engagement, that humility, it's worth it. Because in giving ourselves, we find ourselves. There's great joy in living for the glory of God. I, I know as I was thinking through this, like I could just kind of like tick off all the ways that I hold things against my spouse, that I hold things against other people in relationships. And as I thought through this whole forgiveness thing, I just, I know it's hard. I, I, like, I get that. It's not like I just, like, emptied myself and forgave everything and for everybody this week. I didn't, I just, I'm still working on these things and talking through these things. Marianne and I took a walk yesterday and had good conversation around some of these things. It, it's a process. I'm just one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread in this, pro, in this process. But I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that in your marriages there is quick and eager forgiveness for the glory of God that there is service, that we engage each other, and that we are humble. Marriage is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But if we place it as ultimate, we're constantly dissatisfied with it. But when we live with it in a way that Christ calls us to, we find great joy, and we also lift up our great God and Savior. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you guys. And then we're going to sing a couple more songs. Brian is going to come back up here and lead us in a few songs. And we'll ask you to sing along. And we'll, uh, we'll put out communion on either side here. We do this every week at, uh, at our churches. We put out the bread. We put out the cup. And we invite you, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to come forward and to take that. To take that bread, which represents Jesus' body. Dip it into the cup, which represents his blood. And remember and receive that and thank him for his gift of forgiveness and salvation to you. And then join us in song, sing along, celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ who forgives us and loves us so that we can forgive and love each other. Let me uh, have you guys stand up and I'll pray. Father, you're a good God. And Lord, we, we, we entrench ourselves in these selfish, lazy, self-righteous lives. We don't want to give. We don't want to share. We want to live for our glory, not for someone else's. Lord, the, the beauty of the gospel is that you left your eternal glory, came into this world, and died in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be received, so we could be welcomed into God's family. You forgave. You served us. You emptied yourself so that we could be right with you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And we ask that the gospel does work on our hearts, in our relationships, in our marriages, so that we can serve and love others. God, help us to find joy in our marriage, not just because it, 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 uh, 
it feeds us what we want or it just allows us to do what we want. It just gives us temporary pleasure. Help us to find joy in our marriage because we're fulfilling what we are created for. We're, we're serving and loving and we are finding ourselves in that. And Lord, I pray for the marriages of our church that they would be lived for God's glory, that they would make Christ known, and that there would be great joy found in them. We love you, God, and we thank you for the gift of marriage. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.